Welcome everyone to the first episode of the Osgood Health Law Association's podcast for the 2022 and 2023 academic year. My name is Mallory Cramp-Waldensberger and I'm excited to be joining you for the first time as your new editor-in-chief. In this role, I have the privilege of hosting this podcast and speaking with various guests about all things health law related. Our goal is that each episode of this podcast will introduce a new aspect of health law to our listeners. And today, Christine Carthew will also be joining me as my co-host. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Christine, and I'm a second-year law student at Osgood Hall, and I'm event coordinator for the Osgood Hall Law Association. I'm, I'm very excited to be joining today. And we're so excited also to be kicking off this new season with an incredible guest, Lisa Feldstein. Lisa is the principal lawyer of Lisa Feldstein Law Office. Her practice encompasses all aspects of family health law, including reproductive law, which we're excited to be discussing today. Lisa frequently presents on topics in health law, including privacy, medical assistance in dying, caregivers' rights and responsibilities, fertility law, and even more. Uh, she is an adjunct professor at York University, where she teaches healthcare law to undergraduate students. And finally, Lisa is an Osgood Hall Law School alumni. She graduated in the class of 2010 and is also a former executive member of the Health Law Association, which is so exciting for us. Um, today, Lisa will be speaking with us about her experience as a family health lawyer working in the area of reproductive law, and we hope to explore and demystify the subsection of health law, which, at least for me and Christine, is very new and exciting. Um, so thank you, Lisa, for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Great. Okay, so to um, get us started today, we we want to kick off, Lisa, by asking you what drew you to you know, this area practice or, or your current practice, I should say? Well, before law school, I already was headed for health law. So that had been well established by the time I got to law school, actually. But the fertility part, which is what we're focusing on today, that I actually had no idea that was a practice area. But my plan in law school was to make everything about health law, including the courses that weren't about health law. So in my family law course, which I just took to be sort of well-rounded and reasonably ready for the bar exam, I took family law. And we were given the opportunity to choose our paper topic from several that the professor, several cases that the professor selected in advance. One of those happened to be reproductive law case. And I saw that as my opportunity to make my paper a health law paper as much as I could. And I absolutely loved writing that paper. It was a criticism of a, I believe it was a court of appeal decision relating to what was then known as the semen regulations under the Food and Drugs Act. And I really enjoyed uh, critiquing this judgment, which I found to be uh, paternalistic and I've gone back and looked at it since then. And I, I still actually, um, <laughs> I really, you could see the passion that I had at the time even. And I actually went on to get that paper published in the Canadian Journal of Family Law. And so that was really the spark of sort of knowing there's this area of law. I still didn't know anybody was practicing in private practice. I thought it was more academic at the time, but that was the beginning of kind of recognizing there's this intersection of fertility and health law. That is so fantastic. I'm, I'm very curious to um, take a look at this paper, actually. I, I don't know if you'd feel comfortable sharing yeah, send, it with us, it but um, yeah, I, I, I really like what you said about uh, bringing health law into each of your courses, even if they aren't explicitly related to health law. And um, in my experience, at least in law school so far, um, 
I, I see connections with health everywhere. Um, you know, whether, whether um, a, a course outline intends there to, to, you know, intends to make that connection. I, I, I often find myself connecting health with law. So that's really cool to, to hear how you did that in, in a, you know, family law. It didn't always work. Real estate law. I don't think I found many connections, but business associations became an opportunity to ask questions of the professor about what about nonprofit organizations? How would, you know, how would that be um, this concept unfold in that setting, knowing that many healthcare organizations like hospitals are nonprofits. So yeah, wherever I could, I tried to craft a health law major unofficially. Very nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how it makes even being in law school so much more motivating when you have that key aspect in in areas that you want to investigate in each course. So that's incredible. And I know that it's quite a jump to go from your experience in law school to today, but something that we are really curious about is your current practice that you've developed and what it means to practice reproductive law in Canada today. So we're wondering who are the clients of who are your clients and, and what services you provide them? Sure. And reproductive law, a lot of people will call it fertility law. It's a very small field. There's really only a handful of lawyers that do this work regularly. And the majority of files are contracts. So those are contracts between surrogates and people who are called intended parents. So the people are sometimes it's not always a couple, an individual as well, who will be the person raising the child. They may or may not be genetically related to the child, but they are the parent to be. So the intended parent We do donor contracts as well. So that could be sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation. So that's the bulk of the work is either writing the contract for the intended parents or giving independent legal advice to the surrogate or donors. And then there's serving the institution. So the various people who are more on the industry side within the reproductive space. That is a lot of consent forms. I'd say the majority of the work is consent forms, drafting or updating consent forms or drafting agreements for organizations. And then there's the weird ethical situations that come up that are challenging and just helping clients um, help guide them through what is the legal thing, what's the right thing to do when there is no roadmap. And this is one area where I found there's often no roadmap of how to proceed in some of these unusual situations that can arise. So figuring out with what we know and then using good judgment and drawing on ethical principles sometimes, how, how do we proceed forward when we don't have any precedent for this particular scenario. So sometimes those puzzles are actually really fun to help clients with. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that was so interesting in in our research and looking into fertility law before meeting with you today is the fact that this is an area of the law that is so fluid and changing and that can be exciting, but also, you know, knowing that those are challenges that you come across every day is, is incredibly motivating and interesting as well. Yeah, the learning never stops, but I think that's true for probably every lawyer in every field. The law changes, you come into new scenarios. So I think this idea that you learn it all in law school is, is um, some people might have the idea that they know what they're doing, but really you might know for some time and then inevitably you have to adapt and change your practice and, and catch up where you want to switch fields. So yeah, we are all always learning and always uh, growing as lawyers and facing new challenges. And it's just part of part of the process. And it's actually really nice to come to terms with the fact you don't know everything. (laughs) When you're, when you're in the beginning of your career, you feel that in an overwhelming way. And later on, you just kind of accept that is part of being a lawyer is you actually just don't know everything. And um, that's part of your job is to figure out what clients are supposed to do when there's not a clear answer. 
that's really reassuring (laughs) to hear too, that one day you will accept the fact that, that you don't have all the answers, but um, hopefully you have the tools to, to find the answers or, or in your case, it sounds like um, come up with the answers uh, for this, for this area of law that, that is, is developing. I am curious too, to ask you about something you mentioned, um, you mentioned that there are very few lawyers practicing in this area. And I'm curious to get your sense on that. Do you think that this is an area of law that's growing? And do you think that it's an area of law that's, you know, perhaps underserved and we need more lawyers to, <laughs> to take this on? I'm curious. You, my answer might surprise you. Due to a change in the legislation a few years ago, at least in Ontario, in some ways it's shrinking. <laughs> because some of the work that was required is no longer required. And that's actually, in many ways, a very good thing. Some of the legislative developments were in the right direction in terms of making it easier for people to build families through third-party reproduction and not have to go to court. But in removing the need to go to court, it reduced some of the work that lawyers in the field needed to do. So there's still Mm -hmm. lots of contracts out there, but this this step of going to court for several types of files um, isn't necessary in Ontario each province is different. So the need to go to court will vary from province to province. Interesting. And, um, you know, kind of on that note about uh, the legislative framework underpinning this area of law, um, from our understanding, this area of law, and from what you've said today, this area of law is governed through private law agreements, as well as um, a, a federal um, piece of legislation. And I wonder if you can tell us about any tensions that might exist between uh, the private and public aspects of, of this area of law. So we do, we have different legislation and it varies a little from province to province. So federally, we have the Assisted Human Reproduction Act and it's pretty sparse legislation. And the reason it's so sparse goes back a little over a decade now, it was a much more robust statute initially. And then some of the provinces, specifically Quebec in the beginning, um, were not such a fan of this legislation. And there was the issue of who actually gets to make laws about some of the topics that were covered in this act, because some of them were kind of looking provincial in nature. They were relating to privacy and fertility clinics. And so they brought a reference to court and the Supreme Court of Canada released its decision in 2010, and that ultimately resulted in chunks of the legislation being removed, essentially, and and, and not considered valid because they were under the provincial jurisdiction rather than federal jurisdiction. So what is left of the legislation is fairly sparse. We do have uh, some regulations. So we have consent regulations about consenting to using um, sperm and egg. We have new from 2020 reimbursement regulations. And then the law itself, which is quite sparse, does establish for us that surrogacy is lawful provided surrogates are not paid. So we don't have any commercial surrogacy in Canada. We have a little bit of information about donation of sperm and egg, same idea um, that you cannot purchase uh, sperm and egg directly from a donor. So we have a little bit of that framework. And then the provinces fill in the gaps in terms of the parentage piece. So the provinces will have the laws about whose name goes on a birth certificate or how many people can legally even be a parent. So that varies from province to province. And then the contracts further fill in the gaps with making commitments. So for example, somebody donates their eggs in the contract, a donor might say, I will update you. If I'm diagnosed with some sort of serious genetic disorder, I will update you. The law doesn't say anything about that. It's not prescriptive, 
but by way of contract, they might decide amongst themselves what kind of commitments they're going to make in terms of exchanging information into the future. So there's these different kind of tiers, but the federal legislation is actually the most uh, sparse in, in terms of guidance. And then we enter into a new <laughs> layer of challenge, which is when there's multiple provinces, which law do we fall under? Because there might be an egg donor from British Columbia who is traveling to a fertility clinic in Ontario and donating eggs to a couple that lives in New Brunswick. So sometimes we actually have to think about which area of law is the law under which this contract will be written and that all the parties kind of want this to fall under. And this is where conflict of laws can come in is, is where is this, where kind of this connection and which law makes sense when we have multiple jurisdictions involved. Wow. Oh my goodness. What like an interesting framework to be applying there. And I do encourage anyone who's listening to take a look at the Assisted Human Reproduction Act and exactly how sparse it is, because it's certainly something that surprised me when I took a look at it. And one of the things, Lisa, that you touched on that is very interesting about sort of the financial aspects of surrogacy agreements is that there are particular limits placed on that from the legislation. And I'm wondering if you could tell us more about what types of financial support intended parents can provide to surrogates. Yeah. And actually my answer will now be a little more fleshed out than it would have been just a few years ago yeah. when the Assisted Human Reproduction Act came out in 2004. There was a reference to regulations that never actually existed. And it was only in 2020 that some regulations came out involving reimbursements. So now if you were to open up those reimbursement regulations, you will find an actual list of what kinds of reimbursements are considered lawful. However, that is still not the whole story <laughs> because the Health Canada created a guidance document to help further flesh out the legislation and expand our understanding of what the regulations mean. And in doing so, some of the language opened the door to recognize there might be some reimbursements that are legitimate that are not actually listed in the legislation. So there is room to go outside of the legislation a lot of lawyers use the but-for test, which law students will learn um, in torts. And the idea of that but-for test applied in this context is but-for a surrogate being pregnant. You know, would she have incurred this expense? So that's at least a helpful rule of thumb to assess whether a reimbursement ought to be paid back. But there are still practical challenges that arise, some that um, are just impossible to truly figure out. So one is groceries. The law does recognize groceries. They're supposed to be, you know, the groceries in relation to the pregnancy. But if you are producing a receipt as a surrogate, which groceries are in relation to your pregnancy? If you're making a, a family meal, what part of that is your part just for you versus the grocery bill that was for the family? And then what part of it is what you would have eaten anyways versus the pregnancy calories? It becomes a really absurd exercise. Where So there's some aspects of it where we kind of all are doing our best to guide our clients and our clients are doing their best to exercise judgment, but we can't, we don't really have a formula to do it in a way that's truly predictable and objective and transparent in all the ways that we would want it to be. And as it can be done for many of the other reimbursements like maternity clothes, which is much more black and white, look at a receipt and you know the total. Um, my brain hurts thinking about that. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that in, in Canada, we don't have commercial surrogacy. I'm curious if you have a take on whether you think we should have um, you know, the ability to, to pay a surrogate, um, not just to reimburse costs, but to pay someone to, to carry a child to term. Mm -hmm. So this is a very controversial question you've raised with many uh, perspectives. So maybe I'll, I'll actually, I think it might be more helpful to share a little bit of both sides of this debate. 
Sure. Because I think both, both sides are compelling. And I don't know if we will change one day in Canada. The latest move to, uh, the latest change to the federal legislation required greater transparency. So not only were there receipts required, but now we need an extra paperwork referred to as a declaration in the law. So we went in the direction of more transparency around the receipts versus um, moving towards commercialization. But there have been, there was a private member's bill a few years ago, and there have been um, some efforts. So I'm sure we'll see that effort pop up again. I don't know if it will be successful or not. Um, one of the reasons a lot of people who believe that uh, commercialized surrogacy should be lawful is because surrogates are actually working. They are using their bodies in a, in a way, but they are doing work. They're showing up to appointments. They're, 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 I mean, there's, I don't, I don't mean labor in the sense of a pun, but there's labor involved in what they're doing and everybody around them in the process is getting paid the fertility clinics and the lawyers and so forth. So some people believe um, that they should get paid and that they're making a huge sacrifice, that they're risking their health. Some people's argument is premised on the idea of it's more related to the health risk. Um, and then of course, the other side is this is commercialization of the human body and that there is exploitation involved and um, the exploitation argument, interestingly, can go both ways. As some people will argue that it's exploitation to not pay a surrogate and take this labor for free. And others will say um, the opposite. I mean, a surrogate is choosing to be a surrogate. She doesn't have to be if she doesn't want to be. And she's choosing to do so on a voluntary basis. And there's a risk of exploitation that people uh, maybe of lower socioeconomic status might feel that they want to do this as uh, a means to make money, but perhaps psychologically they're not a good candidate for surrogacy. Not everybody emotionally can carry a child for someone else and relinquish that child. So it would have certainly increased the number of surrogates and there are not enough surrogates to meet the demand. Um, so if you're looking from sort of a supply demand perspective, which is very commercial lens, um, it would be a benefit. So there's arguments on on both sides for sure and, and some compelling points on, on both sides of that debate. Absolutely, Lisa. And I think you've touched on something really interesting here in terms of the exploitation perspective in both sides of those arguments. And I I wonder even sort of from a bird's eye point of view, when working with different clients, I know that a lot of intended parents have different types of relationships with their surrogates. It might be somebody that they've known for a long time, or someone that they've met on a Facebook group or even um, through a, a separate company. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could let us know, like, do you think from your perspective that the relationship between the intended parents and the surrogate have shifted the ways that those contracts look um, and, and sort of solidifying their agreements? So for the most part, no, okay. actually. And a lot of people will, will reach out saying, my friend is going to be my surrogate or my sister is going to be my surrogate. So this is going to be really easy. And they expect that the price would be lower or the process would be faster but really the contracts mostly look the same. <laughs> we still cover the same conversations because starting from a place of trust and that relationship definitely has its advantages, but it doesn't mean they've had all the hard conversations. Like if a surrogate were on life support, would she want to be kept alive so the baby could be safely delivered? Is she prepared to pump milk for the baby? So the fact that there already is a relationship doesn't mean they've gone through the exercise of having those conversations. I would say that one of the contract differences I've seen though comes with respect to the finances. So if it's strangers, generally there's, um, and they're still mostly all the same, but if I were to identify one difference would be there's more, if there's more trust, then the intended parents might not feel the need to have a specific dollar amount of saying, here's sort of the maximum amount we're willing to reimburse. And we think this should be enough to meet your needs. And here's the different categories of expenditures that we anticipate we would cover. Most contracts do have that. 
But I have seen when it's close friends and family, sometimes they'll say, we don't really need a max, whatever it is, we're going to pay her back. And that's that. Whereas with strangers, almost always there'll be some figure that represents the anticipated sort of ceiling. And it is a ceiling because it's not commercial. So it's not like a surrogate is being paid. If it says 15,000 in the contract, she's not getting a check for 15,000. It's meant to represent a maximum amount that the receipts could go up to based on the party's best guess of, of what number should be enough to cover her expenses. And then sometimes things fall outside of that number. So for example, if she's on bed rest and she loses income, she might go way past that number. So sometimes there's amounts in an agreement that fall outside of what the agreed upon cap is. But some family members will say we don't need that cap at all. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pivot us now to talk about a concept called, uh, which I'm sure Lisa you're aware of, uh, posthumous assisted reproduction. So I know that recently the BC Court of Appeal offered some clarification on the legal limits of posthumous assisted reproduction under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. Can you tell us more about what posthumous <laughs> assisted reproduction yeah. is and, and, and a, where the law currently stands? There's a few really interesting cases and the Assisted Human Reproduction Act so ha has these consent regulations that give us guidance on when are you allowed to use somebody's genetic material after they die and when can you remove their genetic material from their body if it wasn't already removed. And just to clarify that distinction, because that might be kind of abstract, some people may have genetic material already removed from their body. For example, they froze sperm at a fertility clinic. So that can be treated differently in, in, in well, in the case law, there was a case where it was treated differently. So the case that you're probably referring to was a case where a man died abruptly and his wife went to court on an urgent basis and essentially was given permission to have his genetic uh, reproductive material removed from his body so that a court could then have, you know, because if you miss that window, then a court decision is completely moot. So to ensure that the opportunity to go to court um, and argue that she should have a right to use his reproductive material to have a child, and they did already have a child together before his death. Ultimately, what the court said is that the legislation is clear. There needs to be consent in writing in this scenario. It's not, there is no legislative gap was part of what the court said. The legislation contemplated this, and it was just really unfortunate that her partner didn't put this in writing. And often people won't put it in writing, especially if they have not gone to a fertility clinic, um, then they may not have turned their mind to this sort of thing. And it's something that some people could choose to explore further and consider putting in their wills. Although the law doesn't say will, it, you know, it, it's more ambiguous what kind of document it could be in. So there's some flexibility there. So people have to consent in writing. And this comes back to a theme that really plays out in the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which is we have a huge respect for autonomy and people's reproductive autonomy. So reproductive autonomy can mean many things, but I view it really as you have control over your body and what happens with your genetic material. So if I was donating my eggs, for example, I, through the consent regulations, could say I'm donating my eggs to this friend of mine, but I don't authorize my friend to do anything else with my eggs. When she's done, they are discarded. I don't consent to them being donated to research or another person or couple, she can't pass my eggs along. Or I could say the opposite. I absolutely authorize all of these things and she you know, can choose from them and whatever she wants. But the consent regulations recognize that as sort of don't, the original donor, although I'm donating my eggs and gifting her this property, I can still exercise control through what subsequent uses there might be or dispositions. And so this theme of reproductive autonomy comes up in this case as well, is to remove somebody's genetic material after they are gone we recognize that even after someone's died, they may 
have this interest, although they're not with us. And of course, then we can get really philosophical. Um, but we, we even beyond somebody being with us, we recognize their right to reproductive autonomy. And this is a kind of situation I've received phone calls over the years from people that want to be grandparents and their child has had some kind of traumatic accident. It's looking like they would not be able to have a grandchild. They might lose their child and can they remove genetic material? And the I mean, the answer is the legislation says it has to be in writing. And this case was a test case in, in many ways to see what's the flexibility there. In this case, NBC, um, the decision is that the law is is quite clear and it's just a tragic case. And I'm sure we will have these cases again, though, because I don't think there's going to be a meaningful lesson learned for young people to think about, do I, especially, you know, whether they're coupled to, you know, should I put something in writing so my spouse can use my genetic material or somebody single saying, should I put something in writing so that my parents could be grandparents if this tragic thing happened? I just, it's hard to see it translating into um, people's behaviors to prevent these kinds of tragedies from happening. Right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I am um, before learning about the case. Don't know if I ever would have turned my mind to that question. So I, I can relate to, to your point that, that I'm not sure how, um, how many people would would be thinking about that? And but it but it's it's a really interesting question when when Mallory and I were speaking about um, incorporating it into this podcast. We um, we were um, I, getting a little bit philosophical. I think about about um, you know would you wouldn't you like <laughs> I don't know. So um, thanks for elaborating on that. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll turn it over <laughs> to you now, Mal. Sure. And I think one thing that you brought up, especially within the legislative framework of the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, is that protection on autonomy um, of people who, you know, are are donating or, or sharing their, their reproductive material. And we have seen other acts even recently um, protecting the autonomy of, of intended parents at the same time. And I wanted to ask you about the All Families Are Equal Act that was um, came into power in 2016. Uh, it created significant policy changes for same-sex parents who accessed assisted reproduction services and creating and building their families. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through the legal processes that parents would have had to go through to gain legal parentage before the act into, came into force and what change this legislation brought for families. Sure. So the legislation brought a few changes, and this was my reference earlier about not needing to go to court anymore, mm -hmm. was from this legislation. So before it was in force, one scenario was um, in the context of a known sperm donor. So I, one of my earlier files I remember was a lesbian couple who used their friend's sperm to have a child. Sperm donor consented. They had a contract. However, because he was a known donor, I had to go to court and bring a second parent adoption. So one of the parents had to adopt her own child, which clearly felt wrong. Yeah. What can make that situation that much more ironic is the person adopting their own child might even be the genetic parent because sometimes some people will do an egg retrieval and then through in vitro fertilization, the other partner carries. And so that is no longer required, which is a good thing mm -hmm. um, because it felt really discriminatory that somebody would have to adopt their own child. And there's other parts of the world where there's versions of people still having to adopt their own child. Um, that's legislation that was in Ontario, but through the United States and the states actually from state to state, their law is different. So there's a lot of different versions of, of um, how the law plays out in different jurisdictions. So in Ontario, there's no longer a need. Now, a lesbian couple who uses a sperm donor can put both names on the birth certificate and a parent, the parent that doesn't carry the pregnancy does not have to adopt their own child. 
So that's huge development. The other was that for surrogacy cases, and this was regardless of who was the parent single um, or in a relationship, same sex, uh, straight, that didn't matter. But with surrogacy, we went to court for every case because the law was drafted on this assumption that whoever delivered the baby, whoever had the baby was the legal mother. And of course with surrogacy, that's not the case. And so we needed a court order declaring that the intended parents were the parents and doing a declaration of non-parentage, which with, with respect to the surrogate and her partner, if she had one, and then with, with that court order in hand could go get a birth certificate naming the right people as the parents. Wow. So the law changed to say that if there was a contract in place, the parties had independent legal advice. So surrogate has a separate lawyer from whoever is advising the intended parents and drafting the agreement. And that contract is signed before the embryo transfer. So essentially, if you follow these steps, then you can do more streamlined paperwork called the declaration after the baby's born. So a surrogate can only sign seven days after the baby is born. It seems at, like this waiting period was inspired by adoption legislation, although within the industry, there's uh, it's pretty widely felt that the seven days wasn't really needed. There aren't circumstances of surrogates changing their mind. Um, but in any event, seven days later, the surrogate can sign. Intended parents don't have that waiting period. That paperwork can then be filed with the government to get the birth certificate, and there's no need to go to court. So it's rare cases where parents would have to go to court. It still does happen. Um, perhaps they're from another jurisdiction. So international couples have to contend with whatever the law is in their home jurisdiction, and they'll often get legal advice from multiple lawyers for that reason. So perhaps they need a court order in order to be recognized as a parent back home or a, a peculiar situation, like if a surrogate uh, lost capacity and couldn't sign or somehow disappeared and couldn't sign, if so, the court could still be used to remedy those situations. Um, and then of course people can go to court, I should, maybe not of course, but if there's going to be more than four parents, there, there's room to go to court for other uh, circumstances, but the overwhelming majority, we no longer need to go to court for surrogacy. And that was a huge change brought on by that legislation. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I even thinking sort of the practical aspects of a new family having to go to court seems incredibly arduous. And so seeing the fact that they've streamlined that certainly makes a lot of sense in terms of, of resources and sort of compassion yeah. to families as well. Uh, absolutely. And the cost of going to court, like it's yeah. it's a lot of work to go to court and draft <laughs> multiple affidavits and all the work involved and with the court appearance. In And that has been reduced um, to just these rare cases now. And that's Ontario, though. Every province is different. So British Columbia is a lot like Ontario. They led the way. And then some of the other provinces are starting to follow suit. Some require going to court, but through the hard work of lawyers in certain jurisdictions who have been working with the courts, they've found ways to kind of streamline the process, at least so that people are not waiting several months for a birth certificate, which might not sound significant. But if it's an international couple, it's very significant because they need that birth certificate to get a passport to go home. So uh, it, it can be... Uh, really important that they can move that process along quickly so they can get home with their baby. Lisa, you you mentioned an example of uh, where there's more than four parents, uh, you might still have to go to court. And I'm, I'm recalling that earlier on, you mentioned that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you said that uh, the different provinces have different laws around how many people can be a parent. Just purely out of curiosity, in Ontario, do we have a limit on the number of people that can be oh, legally no, we, a parent? We, do, we don't have a limit. So if you actually look at this declaration that gets signed after the surrogacy, you will notice there are four lines. And at a glance, you might think it's first name, last name for two parents, but actually there's four lines for four individuals. So a baby could be born via surrogacy and have four legal parents. Beyond that, a court could make an order. And 
it's possible we'll see that in the future. I'm not aware of a case ordering more, but also I might not be aware. There are cases that aren't always publicized. There are cases that sometimes are sealed to protect the child, especially um, in the days of going to court regularly for these files. It was pretty common to request that the file be sealed because within the file we were including DNA evidence. We had genetic testing that was done. And so there might be cases out there that I just wouldn't know about. That's fascinating. Thank you. Okay, so now I would love to ask you what the, you know, what do you find most rewarding about being a family health lawyer? What's your favorite part? So within the umbrella of what I call family health law, which is just a twin, a coin that I, (laughs) term that I coined to encapsulate the different areas of health law that I was practicing, because the other part of my practice is I focus on serving family caregivers, which is very different than fertility law. So within fertility law, the most rewarding part is I am helping create families. Like that is really neat to get an update that somebody is pregnant or their surrogate is pregnant or an update that a baby has been born and they have gone through so much to get there. Uh, it's really nice to be part of something really positive. And then for me, that's also a really good counterbalance because my work serving caregivers is very heavy, very emotionally draining. My clients are going through such difficult times. So it's really nice to be able to have um, such positive positive work um, to balance some of the other work that I do that is uh, very um, emotionally difficult and very sad and very frustrating. Um, so although that work also, I feel um, I'm grateful I get to do it because it's work that is so meaningful. And I know a lot of people go to law school looking to make a difference and find meaning or purpose in their work. And I would say that through all my family health law files, I have no doubt how much my work matters to my clients. So that part is really rewarding. That's incredible. And I wonder, I know that a lot of the work that you provide to clients is sort of at the beginning of creating these agreements and not everybody has to go to court in the end. So just out of curiosity, I know it would be so fulfilling even just knowing that you have helped them to create these families, but do you often get to to see, um, you know, after the fact and, and meet your clients, um, you know, after they've created these new families and, and sort of keep in touch that way? I had more in the past during the pandemic, some of the protocol has changed. So now there's certain things that are witnessed virtually that previously had to be witnessed in person. So actually during uh, or since the pandemic began, I haven't. And but prior to that, there were times that people would come in with their babies or I would meet them. And and yeah, that was definitely nice. And now at least they still sometimes they'll hold their baby up on the screen. But uh, but yes, now now it's remote and clients um, don't have to come in person, actually. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that's so exciting regardless. Like I I couldn't imagine how fulfilling that that can be. Um, And Lisa, now that we've learned about how interesting and complex and also rewarding this practice of law is, I know that one thing that you touched on was your experience in law school and and focusing on health law and having that be sort of um, a guiding aspect of your studies. But I wonder if there's any other advice that you would give to law students who are potentially listening to this podcast episode and are now interested in pursuing family health law or more more specifically uh, fertility law. Yeah, so I would say to keep a very open mind, and this is not just from my experience, but interacting with so many students in law school, and of course, now more than a decade out of law school, and many people who are interested in health law, keep an open mind. Law is so big and broad, and has careers have twists and turns, and I find, I speak to a lot of students who think they need to have it all figured out, but in reality, there's a lot of health lawyers who fell into health law. That wasn't even their plan, they were doing something totally different. And based on the firm they ended up in and a file they got, 
it opened a door to an interest they didn't know they had. So keep a really open mind because within health law, it is so, so broad. The work that health lawyers do is varied from um, medical device regulation. And there's some lawyers who do work that intersects with health law, but they might not identify as a health lawyer, patents or relating to cannabis. Um, there's labor and employment law lawyers that will focus on the health sector. So there's this intersection and corporate commercial lawyers who are focusing on the health sector and need to understand privacy and sort of the health care industry. So there's a lot of intersection with different areas of law and just so much under this umbrella of health law that I would say there's no need to pick a lane right away follow your interest, but keep a really open mind because opportunities might come up that you've never heard of. I did not set out to create family health law. I didn't even think I would be starting a business. <laughs> that wasn't what I thought in law school. I just knew I loved health law. I loved bioethics and I probably could have been happy doing a number of different things within health law. So keeping an open mind in terms of extracurriculars, the courses you take, and that might be, you know, a little bit of intellectual property and a little bit of business and just making sure you take off that pressure to figure out the narrow lane within health law, like picking health law is already narrow enough, leave room to be introduced to new ideas or accept opportunities that you never knew would fall in your path. Yeah, absolutely. That is both comforting and exciting to hear. I think it is such a dynamic area of law and being able to explore it in different aspects and avenues is just incredibly exciting. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Lisa, hearing your perspective and also for walking us through and sort of surveying this area of law, because I've even, you know, I know that reflecting later today, I'll certainly have even more questions and things to research. Um, so I really appreciate you joining us today. Truly my pleasure. And I will send you that paper afterwards too. <laughs> you can see what I did at, uh, in law school. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Lisa. I've, I've loved our conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Health Law. If you are interested in learning more about Lisa's practice or family health law in general, I encourage you to visit familyhealthlaw.ca. Ashini Pires provided research support for this episode, and Christine Carthew was a co-producer and co-host. I look forward to continuing to explore different areas of health law with you in the next episode.